I'm Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borana of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the On Air podcast. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed our episode last week. And if you haven't listened to it, why not just pause here and go back and have a little listen? Our first topic today is going to be about the cinnamon roll, the the best monarch in the world, King Harold of Norway. Harold has quite recently been hospitalized. Uh, as of the day of recording, which is Sunday, he is still in the hospital and we're not sure exactly when he's going to come out. We know that he's going to have to be in there for a few days. Over lots of episodes, every time Harold has come up, both of us have been like, oh, we love Harold. <laughs> um, and people might be wondering why this Norwegian octogenarian has such a strong hold over two women in their 20s who live in the UK. So we thought that we would explain that to you. And so we're going to have a little bit of a Harold focus for this for the first part of the episode. But yeah, so Harold is the, the king of Norway and he is quite closely related to a few of the other royal families. So he's um, very closely related to the Swedish royal family. Um, and also, like everyone, is quite closely related to the British royal family. You know, one of the... So I think a, a lot of royals have this kind of story, especially if his generation have this kind of story. It's almost fairy tale like of kind of like they grew up in an idyllic life where they were in the countryside and they were playing with their family and everything was joyful. And then suddenly they were ripped from it by an <laughs> insert national tragedy slash death of a relative here, you know. Um <laughs> and I think Harold's happened earlier than most, I would say, because at age three, 1940, it became very dangerous for Norway. Uh, you know, this was during the time of the war and the Nazis had kind of set their sights on Norway and it became unsafe for the family to be there. So they had to flee from Norway. And his father ended up in London. Him, his sisters and his mother ended up in Washington, D.C. And they lived with um, FDR, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, as you do, just casual. Um, and I, I don't know, I think a lot of what I like about Harold probably did come back from that early period of his life. Um, and like, I tried to find if he remembers a lot of it, um, but he said that he kind of, he was so little, he doesn't really remember much of, of that time period. And, you know, it could have been a time that was deeply traumatic to be kind of torn away from your home. So it could have been a very traumatizing time, but I think I've seen footage of them in Washington at the time and like they just seem to have the time of their life they kept up their normal activities that they would have done in Norway and they there was Norwegian flags everywhere it was like their mum Princess Marta kind of didn't let them forget about their home and both of their parents were kind of idolized for the way that they handled the war effort it's quite similar to the UK I suppose where there was a lot of love and affection for George VI and the Queen Mother because of how well they handled the war effort and so I think a lot of like his popularity, a lot of his commitment to Norway, a lot of his focus on family kind of all stems back, to, even if he doesn't remember it, kind of all stems back to that example that was set by his own parents during a really difficult time. He, I think a lot of, not all, but a lot of the kind of older monarchs had to spend that period of time away from their sort of family, but Harold had to spend it away from, you know, his country. He went to America and 
you know, at three, you're not going to know what's going on. You're just going to be like, why are we here? Why is daddy not here? What's going on? Obviously, he was going to be treated very well wherever he ended up as a prince of Norway. But I think they, they were, I think it was, you know, a credit to his mum, to Princess Marta, for managing to kind of bridge the gap between America and Norway so well. And also, you know, essentially single-handedly raising them for quite a while. Obviously, she would have had help. She wasn't just like a single mum in a one-bedroom flat. She was still the Crown Princess of Norway living with the President of America. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, she did have help. In comparison, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she would have still had to, you know, do all the kind of like teaching them to be Norwegian royals while also allowing them to grow up in the heart of like American democracy. This was the 1940s, you know, this is 1940 to 1945 when they were in the US. Um, their approach was actually really quite modern because I think there was a tendency to think, well, if this bad thing has happened, let's just not think about it or not talk about it. And that still happens today. Whereas Marta's approach was like, let's put up Norwegian flags. Let's talk to them. Let's, she did so much work. She was so beloved because of what she did to raise money and awareness of the Norwegian people's struggles during the war. And so it was like, he was very well supported by his family, but he also kind of was constantly reminded of like his home and he wasn't made to feel like that was something that couldn't be discussed or it was scary or frightening. He was obviously allowed to ask questions. And, you know, I think, you know, that's a really, that is a really modern approach. And he, he kind of saw, I think, the, in action, the most important element of a monarchy. And we've talked about this before, but like the times when monarchs and royal family members really come into their own and really make a difference is after national tragedies. And so he got to see kind of firsthand two parents who did a huge amount of work for Norway during a very very difficult time and I think that that kind of it had to have soaked in a little bit to kind of inform his own approach and sort of to recognize the power that his role could give him if he used it wisely. They did the royal stuff they still did the royal stuff like they went to visit Norwegian sort of servicemen who were training in Canada and you know they'd learn about the war and they still to do that in you know very difficult circumstances I think particularly probably post 1942 when the USA also got involved in the war um but they they managed to bridge that gap very well for a child who was in a different country to still manage to be a child but also do the sort of things that royals do so well that time you know even though he doesn't he says he doesn't remember it that clearly it probably was quite important to him because it was only about a year after they got back that his mother um princess Marta became very sick and she was kind of sick off and on for the next eight years until she passed away when he was 17 so like it was kind of tragedy upon tragedy really like he'd spent he'd, he'd been able to spend so much time he was obviously incredibly close with his mother because he hadn't had his father around for those five years and then as soon as they get back to their home country where they, you know, could rebuild and um, kind of uh, be a more normal family again, she gets sick. And that kind of doesn't really end. It's, you know, it's a consistent thing for the next eight years that she's sick until eventually she passes away. And like, I can't imagine I'm 29. If I lost my mom now, I'd be devastated. Um, she listens to this and, you know, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> um, I would be sad if she died, mum. But like at 17, uh, Crown Princess Marta was so beloved by 
the Norwegian people and so engaged in family like both her sort of children and her sort of siblings and parents it you can tell that the kind of impact on Harold would have been completely immense it's, it kind of reminds me in a way of when Princess Diana died not that I really experienced that I was a baby but the kind of like not only did she represent Harold have to deal with losing his yeah. mother he had to deal with losing someone that the his country his people his friends would have loved mm-hmm. definitely and I, you know he's spoken a little bit about his grief especially in the last few years because his granddaughter uh, or his granddaughters lost their father his daughter princess Marta louise was married to a writer ari ben who um died by suicide the girls his daughters he had three daughters and they were all kind of like teenagers um the oldest Maud did the reading at his funeral which was very moving and has kind of started speaking quite a lot about um suicide and mental health and you know I, I love Maud that's kind of brought up Harold's own feelings of of grief and you know he was kind of around a similar age and he's spoken about how you know it was difficult because even though she was sick for a long time they never really got to say goodbye and he doesn't you know he said about how he doesn't feel like he would have been as strong as Mart- as um, Maud was to be able to deliver that kind of speech and um you know I think he's he has been open about it not quite as much as you know if we're using the Diana comparison not quite as much as William and Harry possibly but for a man of his generation he has been very open about the, the sort of grief that he experienced when he lost his mum at such a young age. Yeah and it was only a few years I think it was three years before his grandfather the king then died so he was crown prince Harold and I think that's probably something that he thought when that would happen it would also be when obviously when his dad became king and his mum became queen and he would have them to talk to about it and lean on except he didn't have his mum because she was dead and his dad was obviously also grieving his wife and his own father so for what was probably always going to be a very sad but you know different experience was probably far sort of lonelier than was planned when he was growing up I'm skipping ahead in my notes but um that did make it very important who he then married because she would be even though he wasn't the most senior man in the country she would be the most senior woman in the country whoever he married so um later down the line the fact that there was no kind of female influence was very important to who he ended up marrying but I'm getting ahead of myself (laughs) (laughs) pivoting drastically my next notes (laughs) the next part of my notes it's kind of about his education. So he went to the University of Oslo. He went to the Norwegian Military Academy. He went to Oxford University. And it was a- around this time uh, that I think he started to really show his aptitude for sailing, which we talked about in last week's episode. So you should go back and listen to it if you haven't already. If you haven't already. Um, but yeah, he was, he was, I mean, he was a rower at Oxford, which if you don't know, if you, there's um rowing is huge in Oxford and Cambridge universities and they have like an annual boat race which I've watched once and it actually was surprisingly interesting he competed in three Olympics he's still doing I mean he's hospitalized right now but like a week ago he was doing competitive sailing in his 80s yeah it's a passion and you know we spoke last week about like Princess Anne is the horse person like Mm -hmm. Harold is the sailing person and he's also running a country (laughs) like that's quite a big second job it's not like he's retired and he's just decided to take up sailing as an interest in his retirement he is the king (laughs) (laughs) but I found a quote where he said that where he was asked about like the fact that he still sails I think this was when he was in his 70s but um he was asked about when he still why he still sails and he said that he 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 can't stop playing 
um <laughs> which i just loved um you know it's just like it's it's a lot of fun to him um i found a quote from his daughter marta louise who i mentioned uh who said that he's he becomes like a different person when he sails apparently he's very shouty very bossy and just a very very different <laughs> person which again i was like oh i'd love to see that version because harold i always associate as being like sweet and grandfatherly and friendly and smiley and i can just imagine you know i'd, I'd just love to see what he's like shouting at everyone on the boat i am absolutely obsessed with the fact that you know eight-year-old Harold gets on a boat and is even though he's not like temporary he's the king he's like oi do this move this yeah. but it's yeah I suppose everybody needs a release I also read some things about like he did have to scale back some of his sailing begrudgingly and um he but he has all of these boats so he um loaned boats that he has to sailors who are training which I thought was a really cool little story um that's so kind imagine that you just really want to sell and you can't and then like you're like oh it's kicking harold said so she can borrow his boat for a bit yeah and it's gonna be a good boat thank you King harold yeah uh so he obviously is very passionate about like not just his own sailing but kind of young sailors and encouraging young sailors to take it up as well he's like very invested in the sport yeah well done harold well done but i think beyond sailing his other great <laughs> love only one person it could be yeah um it's me no um it's uh <laughs> it's queen sonia his wife um and i think i'm gonna be honest i think that their love story deserves a longer focus in a separate episode but i think it's hard to do any kind of episode about how or any kind of talk about how old as a person without talking about sonia they were to get they got married in 1968 but they were actually together for nine years before they were allowed to marry basically Sonia was a commoner I mean she wasn't doing terrible she was very middle class it was like Kate Middleton I suppose of her era but she was a commoner and so Harold's dad basically said sorry no but you can't marry her and Harold said well sucks to be you because I'm going to do what I want and eventually he gave the king an ultimatum and he basically said if you don't allow me to marry Sonia I will not marry anybody and I will have no children so he was like I'll just I'll end the family line the idea that you, you know you could it's impossible that, that you could find anybody else who is as good as this person and who you love as much as this person and willing to kind of put this huge sacrifice and ruin your relationship with your father all because of how much you love this I don't know it's just very romantic and I just also love the level of drama from Harold to be like, okay, either I marry Sonia or this whole monarchy thing, I'm burning it down. Like, this is it. It's like, there were a lot of these kind of like older royals who fell in love with someone they weren't supposed to. And then when the ultimatum was either you you marry them and leave or you stay and ditch them, they all went for, yeah, I'm going to stay. And Harold was like, nah, I'll stay, but I will ruin everything. So like, do you really want that? And I love that for him. I was similar to you in that I knew Harold existed, but I didn't really pay that much attention to him. And I actually thought he was quite a sort of serious, somber kind of guy um, for quite a long time. And then the thing that made me sort of fall in love with Harold or become interested in him initially and then open up the doors to falling in love with him was an interaction between him and Sonia that I saw, uh, which is when they were talking about a polar research station. And... <laughs> A lot of these polar research stations are named, or like areas in that, or places in that area are named after members of the Norwegian royal family because they're so close to it. So there's like a Queen Maud land or something, which is um, named after one of the queens of Norway. But um, he he said to her, like, or he said to the interviewer, they were being interviewed, he was like, oh yeah, well, they named the polar research station after you, 
Sonia. And she was like, but but it's called Troll. And he was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he just laughed like a little kid. And you know, I love his dad jokes. Um, but I just also love like, you know, it would be terrible if he'd fought and made this huge statement and put his dad on the line or put the monarchy on the line and put his dad in that position if he'd then been like, you know what, I actually don't like Sonia that much. We don't really work together. But they still are just so in love. And I just love those little moments where they kind of, he takes the mick out of her or um, they just seem like very normal grandparents, you know. He is such a, like, such a granddad. He really is. Like, he does all the granddad things, but he's just, like, happens to be a king. So he'll do, like, embarrassing granddad jokes. And then he'll just say something really, like, something, that type of thing that you'd find written in a book that you'd be like, oh, that's a good line. That's really clever. Someone's thought about that one. Except he just says it. In, like, like Princess Ingrid Alexandra's birthday, her gala. His speech was just, I loved it. It was so sweet and so sort of heartfelt and funny. And then every now and then you're just throwing this little drop of, like, kingly wisdom but I think and I I love that that kind of streak has been inherited like Ingrid Alexandra in particular when she gives speeches now I mean we both said she's incredible at speeches but especially with these events like her confirmation and her birthday she roasts her entire family and I feel like that stems from maybe Harold's father was like that as well but that definitely is a Harold thing perfect balance of humor and lightness and kind of a kind of familial closeness where they're able to poke fun at each other, but then he knows how to also turn it on and, and become like King Harold, who's going to teach you about an important life lesson. We mentioned this in our, our sort of LGBT episodes, but his speech in 2016, even now when I think about it, when he said, you know, he was talking about how Norway is a place for everyone and, you know, was naming sort of all these different sort of sexualities and genders and refugees and bring it all together sort of a head of not just a head of state but a king from that generation giving a speech like that and it also didn't sound written like it, it obviously was written so but it didn't sound like someone had said it and he was just reading it off a piece of paper it felt like it came from Harold and I think it's why not just that but that kind of approach to things is why he is so respected within Norway I think it's just um you know he's he's greatly beloved by the people and I think it is because he definitely just keeps step with Norwegian society really well so he is for a monarch very very progressive but he never gets to a point where it feels like he's preaching at people or telling people how to live he never seems to overstep that line and so he's he's done it he does it very very well because it is explicit it's not like you know if the queen over here says everybody is equal she doesn't ever say who's not currently treated as equal. She doesn't name that. Harold does, because it's more appropriate in Norway to do that than it is in our political climate. But he doesn't ever go so far as to being like, and you're responsible for the fact that these people are not equal. So you need to, fit. you know, it's, it's, it's not an activist, which is not what a royal should be, but it is progressive for what he, for the role that he has. And it's not a one-off either, you know, like um, he's kind of known as the reformer, like he's made the Norwegian royal family much more open to the media. And he went on record to praise um, equal primogeniture, which allowed girls to have equal say to the throne as, as men. And, you know, when Ingrid Alexander was born, he was kind of like, thank goodness we finally have a female future monarch. And, you know, I think to kind of link it back, a lot of it does, I think, stem from probably his parents and the time in the war effort and, you know, uh, 
his own kind of struggles with Sonia to get her to be included and accepted of like he just seems like a very empathetic and accepting person you know he's had multiple um members of the family join who are commoners who are unconventional like Metamaritz had a child already whose father had had a drug arrest his daughter's about to marry a shaman he's accepted him into the family he treats his step relatives and step grandchildren as his own I don't know he just right I don't know if it I'm just doing some pop psychology here and this is actually nonsense but you know growing up in a very difficult circumstance where his family were very important to him um seeing the struggles of somebody who didn't come from the same background as him to be accepted in, in the establishment I don't know if that's kind of fed into why he is the person he is today in that he's just yeah he's very empathetic he's very accepting and he's doesn't shy away from saying how he feels about things in an appropriate way yeah I think Harold really comes across as someone who is Harold the person before he is Harold the monarch and I can't think of any other monarch who comes across that way to me no matter how much I sort of like or dislike them they all come across as the monarch who is also a father or mother or whatever but Harold is Harold and he's a husband and a father and a grandfather and a friend and a sailor and he's also the king and he's very good at that. You know, as a step grandchild, I know that even if people don't mean to treat you differently, sometimes they do if you're their step relative, especially if you came like they came into your life when you were already kind of four or five um, and you were already a little person. You know, they it, it, it is a different relationship and it's not always a negative thing. It's just a fact. But I don't ever feel like Harold has treated his step grandson differently I don't feel like he's ever uh, made things difficult for Metamarit who you know could have been quite a controversial choice you know he's welcomed her with open arms and that personally resonates with me I think is one of the reasons that I was so fond of him from, from very early on. Harold is I don't want to like the most fragile monarch because that sounds really bad but he's since kind of 2000 sort of been in and out of hospital so much and it feels weird to say I'm protective of an 80-year-old king who I've never met, but I feel very protective of him because he does all these brilliant things while also, I mean, in the last, what, 20 years, he's, you know, had cancer, he's had operations on his heart, he's had operations on his tendons, he's had breathing difficult, like, so much, like, that type of thing, like, one of those things should floor someone. And being king, you don't get, like, three years off to recover. You're like, you've had your surgery, back in the office. And he's never, sort of, complained about it and I think a lot of that is down to his character as a person and his family around him because Hakon's been stepping in as regent for years for you know 20 years since he was in his 20s um and he must have created a family where Hakon can step in and know he's got the support of his mother and his wife and his children and his sister and you know you can see it when the family all get together there is such a kind of bond between them between the cousins and you know the in-laws and it just feels like and I'm going to go back and say I think it's all down to Crown Princess Marta <laughs> I think she has imbued the family with this kind of strength that is very unique I think amongst particularly sort of famous families but especially royal ones where there's you know historically been a lot of infighting yeah a lot of dysfunction and it's funny I wrote down here I wrote this at like 2am or something but I wrote down he's very he's very popular will be a great loss to see him go it's like what what 
come he's only in hospital jessica <laughs> he's not died like, i don't know why i was so morbid at 2 a.m but i think the sentiment <laughs> is there you know we we've explained a little bit here about why we love harold and some of the stories from his life that i think have influenced who he is as a person but um of just he's my favorite monarch of ever of any monarch and um i every time he goes into hospital i become irrationally worried about a man that i don't know um and i just i hope he gets better soon yeah good luck harold you'll be fine you'll be fine hopefully when you're listening to this you'll be all sitting there like harold's fine we just saw him today during an engagement So our sort of second point of today's episode is staying with the Haroldish theme of Harry's. And um, we are jumping back to Britain to talk about the lawsuits the Duke of Sussex has been filing against the Home Office and the Metropolitan Police about security. In 2020, in January, um, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex uh, announced they wanted to step back as being senior royals. A year later, they officially sort of ended their job as senior royals they had that sort of year's grace um and they now live in america and then in january 2022 so this year um prince harry applied for a review of the decision to not allow him to personally pay for police protection and try saying that fast it's very (laughs) hard that lawsuit is still ongoing there's been a few developments since but it is still ongoing and then last week so on august the 4th he filed a second lawsuit. So the first one was just against the Home Office. This one is against the Home Office and the Metropolitan Police. And it is specifically focused on the whole private individuals should not be able to fund police protection issue, sort of sub-issue of its overall issue, which is genuine, which is just roughly, I would like to please pay for police to protect me when I'm in the UK. I think, so it's opened up a few questions from people about sort of how security works, who and so we're going to talk a bit about some of those questions that have come up. Um, and I think so one of the big questions that has come up quite a lot is basically, I suppose, what is royal protection or what is covered under royal protection? Because obviously Harry is very wealthy and he has private bodyguards when he's in the US. So a lot of people have kind of been thinking, well, why can't they just hire private bodyguards here? Why, you know, which is a reasonable question. So different countries kind of organize royal protection differently. So, but generally speaking, most protection teams are kind of part of a specialist part of uh, like the police force. Uh, Often they'll serve other diplomats and high profile individuals. So that's kind of the case in the UK, in Sweden, in Norway, in the Netherlands. There are a small number where they're part of the military, um, like in Monaco. But I would say like there are some commonalities around what you get with royal protection that you don't get with a private security team. Yes. And I think the other thing that kind of sets them apart, particularly and notably, I think, in Britain, I'm not I don't know the gun laws in every country is that they are armed, because if we look at Britain and I'm going to say Britain and not the United Kingdom, only five percent of police are armed ever um, and they're specially trained armed police um, I think it's slightly higher in Northern Ireland um, and that's the kind of the big separation between personal security and personal police protection in the UK personal security in the UK can't be armed I did a lot of googling on that went through a lot of different rabbit holes and feel like I'm going to get a lot of weird adverts for personal security now on my laptop and guns but, yeah and guns. <laughs> but you can't hire an armed guard 
in the UK. Yeah, they're obviously they're highly specialized. They also have kind of access to police data. If they're a member of the police service, then they have access to police data, uh, which a private security guard wouldn't necessarily. But the big difference is definitely the fact that they can they can be armed. I think that's kind of uh, an area where people get confused. Somebody dug out some obscure regulation that says that people can hire the police. And it's like, yeah, they can, but they are not armed close protection officers. You cannot hire armed guards. That is just the law. It's slightly funny to me. I mean, I don't follow how what Harry does very closely, so I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that he's spoken up about like gun control in the US. <laughs> but it's just a slightly ironic that he's talking about how terrible gun crime is and how many people have died to it in the US. But in the UK, he has launched not one, but two court cases to try and get more guns around him because he doesn't <laughs> think that not having guns is safe enough. I like I don't I don't think I've ever seen a gun in real like they're in the t- in TV shows all the time people are always finding guns in like glove compartments <laughs> I've never found a gun anywhere not really like, <laughs> it's not around and I think one of the things when you think about sort of personal police protection um is when I think like obviously of course they're armed like it makes a lot of sense but then you think people like I don't know if Beyonce came to the UK mm-hmm. and she would have her own security guards with her like they're not armed because I think people think that Harry is wanting like your your bot the bobbies. I don't know what they call them in other countries, but like the beat cops. Um that's what they call them in all the TV shows I watch, but that might be a very 80s thing. Um <laughs> the beat cops. Um but you know, like ordinary police officers to kind of follow him around and he's being deprived of that right. Uh that's not the case. He wants armed guards. Yeah, I think that's the other thing is that access, because I've seen a lot of people be like, well, why can't he just bring his own sort of security guards and give them access? And I'm like, I don't think any country in the world would say, yes, bring over your high level security guards and we'll give them top level government clearance to look at all these terror threats like that doesn't happen. Then the next kind of big question that a lot of people are sort of asking about, including Harry, is um, (laughs) who decides who gets security. I think most monarchies don't even share like the budget that they allocate towards security, let alone who's on the panel and decides all of these things. Yeah, so I found a freedom of information request from the Met News where they had a lovely sentence. I did have to Google some words from. It essentially said, uh, the recourse to given service uh, will have to be assessed on the basis of case by case. The decision is going to be made by the Home Secretary. But thanks to Harry and his quite exciting lawsuit, quite frankly, We've heard that, you know, even though the Home Secretary might be the one that makes that final, he they're the one with the stamp and they stamp it off at the end. It does have a, you know, a few other people it goes through first. There's not just a Home Secretary sitting there being like, mm, no. So in the UK, they're called RAVEC, uh, the Royal and VIP Executive Committee. It's believed to sort of include representatives of the police, the Home Office and the Royal Household. And that's been a big part of Harry's challenge is basically saying like, well, these group of people are not unbiased. And I mean, yeah, you might be right. Maybe they're not unbiased. Maybe they were like, you know what? I hate Prince Harry and I don't want him to get security just because I don't like him. They don't make these decisions alone. Like somebody from the royal household couldn't just kick the door in and be like, we don't want Harry to get security. And then the home office and the police are just like, okay, sure. Like that's, it's a joint decision. Um, but I also think... Maybe it is maybe it is biased, but it's also biased if you allow the person who would get security to decide whether or not they get security. That's biased itself. Like 
And even if Harry had been included, he would still have been outnumbered. His court case, the judge recently was like, based on some of the things you said, we're going to let this go ahead. And some of the things you said, I fundamentally disagree with, so I'm going to throw them out. But the things that he said that Harry should have done was essentially that he should have been informed about the decision before it was made, which, I mean, fair enough, makes sense. You should tell someone, like, yeah, we're not giving you security before you stop giving them security. And the other one was that he should have been able to make his case to Ravek to go and make his case, which I also agree with. He should have been able to do that. Except even if he did that, they that doesn't actually change anything. Like, I've, I don't necessarily believe Harry's got some kind of smoking gun of evidence that if he'd been able to give his case, make his case in person, they would have gone, actually, no, I actually think we've gone wrong here. All of our decisions, based on all the knowledge we have and the government information and the high-level security, undone by this guy from California. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just find it funny that... I, I said that already. Um, <laughs> finding a lot of this funny. But, um, like, he had security for a very, very long time. And he never asked who decided that at any point in his entire adult life until he didn't get it anymore. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he, he, I'm, I'm a taxpayer. And this is my money. And he never thought at any point, like, these people who pay this all of this money, maybe they should get some transparency. It was only when he didn't know and it stopped, you know, it impacted him negatively. He was like, we should have transparency in this process. It's not fair that it's all kept behind closed doors. I was like, well, you didn't care about it when it impacted me. But anyway, I think not to make this a kind of Harry thing, but since he's stepped down as a full time royal and has had a lot of things sort of not I don't want to say taken away from him, but he's lost a lot of the privileges that came with being a full time royal. He seems to be very surprised that they're not just automatically his. I could do, I could have 87 different jobs and I'm still me, but yeah. it might only be that one of those jobs affords me any form of security. Like it's, it's, I'm going to call it rich person dissonance. Like yeah. when you sort of grow up in that bubble and everything is just there. So from birth, Harry's been given security and then it was taken away and he was suddenly like, wait one second. I didn't think about why I had security. I didn't think about where it came from or what the difference in security was between me and the rest of my family, my cousins and my brother and my dad. And suddenly now he doesn't have it. He's having to look at it for the first time with sort of a critical view. Definitely, definitely. And I think that actually leads us nicely into another big question, which is kind of how does Ravek or any other group uh, kind of decide? Informally, a lot of the decision will be made by, the, I mean, ultimately, most of the people who are on there are either elected or report directly to somebody who is elected. And a lot of it, I do think, is going to be sort of like public appetite. And the fact of the matter is, Harry left the United Kingdom voluntarily. So the general consensus from the public was that he shouldn't get taxpayer-funded security, or like as a guarantee anyway. I don't <laughs> think I can quite sort of overstate how little royals come up in the day-to-day -day life of British people like it just they don't we don't talk about them but I remember first of all when Harry and Meghan sort of stepped down and then again after their Oprah, inter Oprah interview because they spoke about security in the interview I remember being at work and like the big sort of driving point of the discussions that were happening because it was one of those rare times where it was being discussed was isn't Harry like we're not paying for Harry's security like he's left a job so he doesn't get the, and the it was people who are anti-monarchy, who don't think we should have a queen, who are left-wing, who, you know, complain about complain about the like the Jubilee and things like that. And they're sort of 
main takeaway from all of sort of Harry and Meghan's discussion on Oprah or even their initial decision to leave was well we're not paying for their security if they're not doing a job yeah which is fair enough and also the thing I said a lot at the beginning as well especially I think it would have been different if he had stayed in the country yeah if he was living in Norfolk we would have been fine with it we'd be like well fair enough yeah exactly a little bit of security most people don't actually want Harry Meghan to be hurt in any way. They'd like them to be happy, healthy, live their best life. And they want them to have the security they need, just not at an expense to them. The court case did kind of show us something that we haven't really seen before, as far as I'm aware, which is this categorization system that the, um, the RAVEC committee seems to use, where the royals are categorised into three basic categories. I've said the word category way too many times there. Um, there's three basic categories so there's people who get 24 7 security automatically by virtue of who they are and it doesn't say who those people are but i'm going to guess that it's the queen charles and the cambridges the main line yeah then there's a group of people who have 24 7 security or have the same level of security but it's not automatic um it's response it's in response to risk so it's basically determined that you know the risk is so high Uh, that they should have the same level of security and what we didn't know was that Prince Harry was always in that category he never automatically got security but he got it at the same level because they were they determined that there was a level of risk uh, of the job that he did and so he should get security in response and then the last category is case by case so I'm assuming that's kind of like if somebody said I'm going to kidnap Princess Beatrice she might temporarily get 24 7 security because there's a very specific threat i think it's important here to clarify that basically what the what the government want to do or what the government have told harry is the situation is that he's moving from category two to category three he i think some people are saying are thinking like oh well when harry comes to the uk he's been told that he's not going to get any support whatsoever from from uh the taxpayers or from taxpayer funded security he's just going to have to have his private security team all the time that is not what has been put on the table what has been put on the table is moving into section three which is basically like these things will be available to him but they will be on a case-by-case basis if he's going to something like prince philip's funeral or um the jubilee he would get security because he is taking part in some kind of role he's there for a specific reason not just a holiday but if he's in the country for a holiday he hasn't announced it he, he's just going to go and visit some friends he doesn't need necessarily and there's no th- current ongoing threat that's been sort of um detected then he wouldn't necessarily need that level of security that's what's been offered not people think he's being moved from out of the whole three category system altogether what they're proposing is moving him from two to three yeah and i think like they've always said right from you know when that sort of january 2022 lawsuit when they first sort of filed their response was if he needed security if they had risk if the risk factor towards harry or his family because it's you know about his whole family was high enough they would obviously give him security they've never said they wouldn't do that they would provide 24-hour security like they would if there was a terror attack against me like if someone out there decided to start calling government was like they're gonna kill grace from you know the south <laughs> they would <laughs> southern grace they'd be putting in you know protect i would be offered protection from the police taxpayer funded yeah one of the sort of subsections of protection officers are like royal household protection they protect the houses essentially so if he was ever staying on a royal property 
it's automatically protected anyway, no matter whether or not, no matter who's in it. And I should just say, Southern Grace, you said that a second ago. <laughs> that sounds like one of those TV shows on like the Hallmark Channel that's got a vaguely <laughs> Christian kind of attitude that's like about some tough Southern woman who runs a cow ranch. Um, anyway, that's not, that's not relevant. I've forgotten to completely forgot my train of thought because I was so busy focusing on Southern Grace, um, my TV show. <laughs> She's going to write a show in the in the middle of the podcast. Yeah, I, I, my brain's already, she's in love with the, the local vet. It's all, yeah. Anyway. Um... <laughs> it's also like, it's not unusual for these categories to be kind of fluid or for people to move through these categories fluidly. So back in, I think it was 2011, the Queen, there was all these stories about the Queen demanding a review of security because she felt like the cost was too much. And so she can't say, I want these people to have their security removed and then it's done. But she basically was like, I want you to look at who gets security of her own family. And then that led to Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie being stripped of their security because they weren't working royals. And so that was explicitly not about the level of risk to Beatrice and Eugenie. That was about cost cutting and public opinion, which was that they shouldn't get security because they're not working royals. And so this is not like the first time, even in Harry's lifetime, that this has happened to close relatives of his, uh, where they've not only lost their security, but they've lost it not because the level of risk to them has changed, but because of their status. And it's been initiated by members of the royal family. Anne and Edward and Sophie all don't have security. 24 7 I'm just trying to demonstrate the fact that this is not the first time even in the last sort of 10-15 years where royal security and who gets it and who doesn't has shifted and that that hasn't always been because the level of risk has changed yeah I imagine that not that we know for sure that Beatrice and Eugenie were originally that kind of band two category two royals with Harry because they were royal highnesses they're both her royal highness princess I can't quite get over the fact that in 2011, Harry, who would have been in his kind of mid to late 20s, so like our age at the time, saw his cousins, who he is apparently very close to, he's close in age to them, lose their security, which was probably the same as his, and just went, that's bad for them. I didn't think about, oh, why has this happened, Dad? Can you explain this to me? Like, did that not ever come up in conversation? Because if it happened to someone in my family, I would literally not shut up about it until I knew all the details. Yeah, and I know that this is a very human instinct, but it is just like 11 years later, or less than that, it became relevant to him. And so suddenly he was interested. But when his own cousins, who he's close to, lost their security, he never thought to ask like, oh, I wonder who decides who gets security. And I wonder what the categorizations are for why certain people get security and other people don't. And well, I want, you know, if I, if this same situation happened to me where I was no longer a working royal, would my, I still get security? Never thought to answer, to ask any of those questions in the space of 10 years. You know, it just, <laughs> it's, it's very, very strange to me. But I, yeah, I think it's just like, this is very normal and it probably did cause issues within the family you know we've heard rumors we don't know the truth but we've heard rumors about Andrew being furious that the girls lost their security and all these things but also I don't really care about any of that I you know none of them have ever taken it public in this way this is very sort of yeah no one else has sued the government yeah this is burning your bridges and then like circling back and building another bridge just so you can burn it it's very intense and, you know, you said something interesting earlier about like MPs. And I think one of the things that shocked me when I was looking into this is that um, in the last 12 years in the UK, we have had three members of parliament who have been stabbed at work and some of them have died. And yet MPs don't receive security. 
It's only if you're like a government minister or you have, you know, there's like a specific threat against you that you would get it. But they are people who are occupying a very similar place in that they are public representatives and they have to take a certain level of risk in doing their job because they're going part of their job is going out and meeting random people in the community and opening themselves up to people like I could stay in my house all day if I wanted to uh, to do my job. They have to go out there and talk to people. If you actually like there have been some risks against the royals. You know, everybody always mentions that Princess Anne was almost kidnapped and, um, you know, somebody scaled in the Queen's bedroom and things like that. But most of the situations where anybody has even come close physically to a royal have been sort of over 25 years ago. The last time I could find any official record that they, you know, actually physically do some royal protecting was in 1994 when um, someone attempted to assassinate Charles in Sydney on stage. It's a great video, you should watch it. Oh yeah, um, If you haven't already. But that means in his lifetime, there's been one time when there's been enough of a risk in the moment to a royal that the royal protection officers have had to do their proper protecting that they've been trained for. And even then they didn't use a gun. It's not like a security guard couldn't have done that. If you're looking at levels of risk, there is clearly higher risk to being an MP than there is to being a member of the royal family, but they don't get any protection automatically. When they step down and their kind of initial comments, and most of the comments were from Harry, they came off like notably kind of tone deaf because he did a lot of things where he talked about like, you know, how he was suddenly cut off financially without any sort of understanding and all these things. And essentially what happened was he left a job and then all the bonuses that came with that job he also lost because he wasn't doing that job anymore and like I just I can't get over how a fully grown man who was married with children like didn't understand that those things were connected like did he think that he's so sort of because he was Prince Harry he was always going to get them or did he think he got those things just because of who he was and sort of separate from his role because it's such a I just I can't get my head around a grown a fully grown adult who had the access to all of this information like far more access than any of us have got to this information could have got to his age and been surprised when they went oh you're not doing this job anymore so you're not going to get the same benefits like it's just I, I just can't get my head, I say it a lot, but I just can't get my head around it. I think it's fair enough that, as you know, as much as I don't like that we have a royal family and as much as I would rather we don't spend as much money on them, I do think that it's fair enough for royals to get taxpayer-funded security because, for you know, regardless of what I think, they do a risky job. So it makes sense that it's us who funds it because we're the ones who are asking them to do this job, essentially. And I do also think that Harry's right that the tra- the process is not very transparent. I don't think it should be transparent because it benefits him. I think it should be transparent to benefit me but and Grace and everyone else. But, you know, I don't disagree with the idea that there should be at least like who is who is on this committee should be public knowledge or like who they which teams they represent even like which organizations. But I also think that this privilege comes in exchange for the work that you do and not just based on who you're born as which again is kind of at odds with what harry's whole thing is which is like anybody can commit can perform acts of service it doesn't matter if you're born a prince or a princess but i was born a prince so i should get all this stuff um it's just very at odds with his whole thing what has been offered to him is actually very fair considering his role in british society he stepped away 
but he has still been offered some level of government funded security if it's needed. It's just not going to be an automatic blanket thing because he is doing a specific job. So he's actually they've give, they didn't have to offer him anything at all, but they have offered him something. And I also think it's concerning the precedent this case would set which is another thing that I think is overlooked a little bit and worries me because theoretically, surely if he wins, any old person who's got enough money could walk in and try and buy armed police officers for themselves. Yeah, the second lawsuit, the most recent one he filed, was about that exact thing. It was about the private individuals currently can't buy police protection. He's like, well, that's not fair. I, I remember I wrote it down and I couldn't even write any other notes about it because I just spent the whole time being like, am I like, can anyone be that kind of stupid? Because the concept of rich people, because it would have to be a very, very rich person to be able to afford it, being able to buy the police, we should exist for the people. And when you get people being like, actually, I think you should protect me, like what? Where does the line go? At what point are you saying that person over there is a danger to me? You need to actively, proactively stop them hurting me. It is just particularly upsetting to me, having seen all of these women who are not too dissimilar to me. You know, they live in London or some of them. There was a teacher who worked, Sabina, Nessa, uh, worked in Catford. And I used to live in Catford. And, you know, they're not too dissimilar to me, really, in that they were just women who walked home on their own at night. And they were killed by total strangers just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yet the police kind of continuously systematically fail us. And if I felt like I was at risk, I couldn't just, I mean, if I was being stalked and I went to the police, it's unlikely they'd be able to do anything just about the stalking. So I wouldn't get a police guard at my house if I was actively being stalked. And so somebody to essentially argue that wealthy people should be allowed to do that and I shouldn't be allowed to do that because I'm not wealthy. I don't know. It just, again, it's just, this whole court case is so strange to me and people supporting it, are very, it's very strange to me because the same people who are like celebrating when Harry says something about gun control or who are celebrating when Harry talks about the royal family being unequal and about how he's all about sort of uh, contributing to society and everyone's equal and everyone's lovely. Those same people will be celebrating this court case when this court case is built on having more guns on the street and inherently it's about who you are born as should entitle you to certain things that other people wouldn't get because they don't they weren't born into the same wealth and privilege if it had been you know James Corden doing this whole thing I don't think people would have been you know supporting him in the same way and I know James Corden hasn't you know served to the country and been in the military which tends to be the, the he did write Gavin and Stacey though but yeah, which I think is actually had a bigger impact on society. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, he's a rich man. He, you know, he's got people that don't like him. Quite a few people don't like him. Like, why can't James Corden have police protection if Harry can? Like, they're both technically fulfilling the same kind of role. They're rich. Mm-hmm. They're friends. Like, mm-hmm. there's no, they both live in California. Yeah. They both have very good ties to the UK. There's not a massive difference. The actual court case is essentially him saying, I was a prince, therefore I am better than everyone and should get special protection. Yeah. And when, you know, I, you know, had to walk home from school at a young age holding car keys. Yeah. I could attack someone who came near me or, you know, I have to tell the children at school that like, 
you know, you have to be careful outside and you can't do these things in, you know, parks and things. I would send that to an eight-year-old. And, you know, when you get, you know, like you said, people get stalked and murdered by their stalkers because there is nothing the police legally can do about it. It's just, it seems so unjust and unfair in a way that things, I mean, as something like monarchies are inherently unjust and unfair, this just seems to be so much more, except people tend not to be focusing on that. And they're just like, nope, I actually, Team Harry on this one, everyone needs security. Yay! Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's less about him as an individual. I would be saying this no matter who it was. You know, it's not so much about him as an individual. It's more about kind of what this court case says. Harry is very rich and he's rich enough to be able to sue the government, which I imagine costs a lot of money. And the government don't, they're not paying for out of like, I don't know, special government money. Like the special government money comes from taxpayers. So at this kind of preliminary stage, one of his court cases cost about £100,000. And it's probably going to go on for at least another year. And now he's done another lawsuit. And if he wins, the courts also have to pay his cost. So I, he's got all this money that he could be using to pay for private security and has sort of created a situation where either um, he loses and has to then pay for his own security or he wins and then the taxpayers have to pay for his court cases. And I think that's just a very privileged thing to do. I don't know. It's just a mind-boggling thing when you drill down to what it actually is about that more people are not kind of you know I I understand people like I love a lot of royals and don't always like their choices and sometimes I call that out and sometimes I'm like you know what I just can't really talk about this right now I'm just not going to think about it um I understand that instinct but people are not just being like you know what I'm going to stay out of this one because I don't really want to talk about it they're actively praising it and it just is mind-boggling to me sides of a coin there two very different halves to that episode uh i hope you enjoyed listening if you do please give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory reviewing service area that's the official title (laughs) Uh, and we will be back next week with another thrilling episode we don't know what we'll be about yet no one knows what goes on in august anything could happen um but until that point it is goodbye from me And goodbye from me. Goodbye.